take a fresh look at the capital of Greece. We are now a proper metropolis, a place where you find the most traditional, hand-in-hand with the most contemporary. Guides from Athens tell us how the city's neighborhoods are making the city a little more pedestrian-friendly. Get more out of a visit to Venice by getting out into the lagoon that surrounds the city. Look at how the light changes. Look at churches that vanish from view. Look when suddenly there are seabirds that are landing on the water and following your vaporetto. The nearby islands are worth a stop, too. Certosa is a kind of an up-and-coming island for younger people. And hear how a little tech-savvy and good Wi-Fi can help you become a digital nomad and work from almost anywhere you'd like to live. A lot of people now are going to have trouble going back into an office because they realize so many benefits of remote working. It's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Have you ever thought about trying to live abroad but didn't know how you'd make a living? Well, in just a bit, American Mike Zwagunski explains how he became a full-time digital nomad. He shares with us how he's learned to make working remotely from overseas work for him from his home base in Tbilisi, Georgia. The waters that surround Venice, and sometimes inundated, can be a curse and a blessing. We'll get a view of Venice from its lagoon with Italophile Fred Plotkin and American-born artist Stacy Caboni, who's made it her home for 20 years. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves in Greece. Hosting the Olympics in 2004 forced the famously chaotic and polluted city of Athens to invest in more pedestrian and eco-friendly alternatives. Tour guides Filippos Kanakaris and Apostolos Doris join us now to look at what you can expect when you stroll the neighborhoods of their city. By the way, we recorded this conversation before the pandemic shut down international borders. Thank Thank you very much. What's it like when you hear an American say, Athens used to be terrible and today it's changed big? Well, we are old enough to remember what you mean, because I grew up in the 1980s where we had the serious problem with this cloud above Athens that was a pollution cloud. Oh, yeah. But then uh, they introduced a measurement, which was not all cars are allowed to enter the city center. You can enter uh, based on the date so, uh, and your license plates. So this improved. Still this. today. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, Athens benefited a lot from that. And Apostolos, there's a more sensitivity for pedestrian zones, I think. From Syntagma Square, you can walk downhill on, on what used to be a very crowded traffic street. And now it's, a, it's like a park. We call it the unification of archaeological sites. So you can start walking starting from Sedagma Square, and you can make your way all down to Keramikos, the ancient cemetery of Athens. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful walk without motorbikes. And there's this beautiful pedestrian sort of a park that goes, to me, almost all the way around the Acropolis, also the hill that the city is built around. And that just seems designed for people. It's, it's beautiful in the evening. It's beautiful in the day. It is beautiful... 24 hours, it's very safe. Someone can walk and enjoy the archaeological sites. They can uh, grab an ice cream and walk for about 30 to 40 minutes. It's a beautiful walk. So when we think about Athens, first of all, of course, it's the city of the Greek Golden Age with Socrates and Plato and, and all of that. And then Acropolis means city on the hilltop. Acropolis doesn't mean Athens Acropolis. There's, there's many Acropoli, but Athens has far and away the most famous Acropolis that travelers come to see. At the base of that, you've got the ancient market, but also the town that was 200 years ago, which is just a small town, today's touristy shopping area called the Plaka. But then, in modern times, 
Athens just went crazy. I mean, what was it, 10,000 people or something 150 years ago and today? Four or five million Greeks are packed into Athens. Can you tell me, Philippos, first of all, if my thumbnail history of Athens was correct and then why it grew so much in the last century. You are absolutely right about what you said. This is exactly the history. So when when we want to speak about Athens, I say, yes, we all know about the classical times, 5th, 6th, 4th century BC, Mm -hmm. but let's go to what's going on now. Modern Athens starts in 1834, when it becomes the capital of Greece. Uh Because after 400 years of Turkish occupation, we are liberated, and they initially make Nafplion as the capital of Greece, but then they say, wait a second, Acropolis is the place that everybody associates it with the ancient spirit, with democracy, with philosophy. So they decide to turn a very unimportant small town. So Napleon was the more logical city because it was a real port and a substantial town and a lovely town to this day, I've got to say. And fortified as well. But it had none of the um, spiritual sort of heritage. That, of course, was Athena. So, sorry, Napleon, we're going to make the capital this almost nothing village that has the great ruins. Absolutely, and they decide to do that. And when Athens becomes the capital, the Allied forces, the big forces of that time, the English, the French, and the Russians, they say, okay, what is Greece meeting? A king. So they bring a king from Bavaria. His name is Otto. Mm. Because there's so many princes that they have to find a kingdom for them because they will never become kings. So when he comes, he takes advantage of the fact that he's a king, and they start building the historical triangle, which is defined by the Acropolis, the cemetery of Keramikos, and what we call the parliament today, which used to be the palace. It used to so be. we're talking 1850s or so we're in the talking, middle of the 1800s. Yes, we're talking exactly about that period. Okay, so welcome modern European capital with a German prince. Our guides to Athens on Travel with Rick Steves are Apostolos Doris and Philippos Kanakaris. Philippos also directs a contemporary theater troupe, and Apostolos has been a presenter on Greek radio. They specialize in showing visitors the ancient and the modern attractions of their city. You can email us about your travels at radio at ricksteves.com. Apostolos, uh, after World War II, Athens all of a sudden triples or quadruples in its population. Why did all that happen? All of a sudden you've got sprawling city of millions of people after the war. We have a development, first of all, in the 50s and 60s, and we have what we call urbanization. So urbanization. People, so what happened, a lot of people that were living in the countryside, mm-hmm. in their villages, they were looking for work. They didn't want to work in the fields anymore. And that's happening, actually, in many countries in Europe. It happened All over the well. world. In, in France, you've got the depopulated little towns in the countryside. A lot of towns were deserted in Greece mm-hmm. because we have a lot of young people coming to Athens not only to study but to find work. And this is why we can see an expansion of the city. And suddenly we have today four, four and a half million people living in the city. So when you stand on the Acropolis, you can almost see half of all the people in the entire country. You have one of the most amazing views when you're up at the Acropolis. And and now it's not going to be clouded in smog because you've done some serious work taking care of your pollution. Now, I remember Athens was still pretty crazy and and struggling and and rough-edged, but... In 2004, you guys had the Olympics. Philippos, how was that uh, sort of a turning point? What's the heritage of the 2004 Olympics? I would say the main thing that has to do with us, and the, by saying us, I mean the Athenians, is the fact that we had the building of the metro, the okay. underground. A big investment at the time. Absolutely, because where Apostolos lives, which is the, the western suburbs of Athens, the only way to access them if you didn't have a car was to get a public transport bus, which meant at best an hour and a half due to the traffic. Now you can be there in 10 minutes. 
10 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half, and it would have been worse today if you didn't invest in the underground way back then. Of course, in 2008, uh, like much of the world, you had the economic collapse. And in Greece, I just thought, how you ever dig out of this hole? Apostolos, how's Greece looking now, considering the very difficult economic realities of the country and its massive debt? It is definitely a challenge. It's a very complicated issue, the crisis, to be able to analyze it now. But what I would like to say is, like, a lot of young people, they come together and they open small businesses in the city center. Uh I feel that. I feel that energy, that creativity, all of the small businesses. For me as a tourist, it'd be boutique hotels and wonderful little foodie restaurants. So certainly Greece has some very serious economic challenges. But I've got to say, as a a traveler, a tourist coming into town, you don't feel that. You, You feel happy to contribute to the economy by enjoying all of the small businesses and restaurants that are popping up. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Philippos Kanakaras and Apostolos Doras, and we're talking about Athens. We have an email from Roya in Huntington Beach, California, and Roya writes, With the economy that Greece is facing, how do tourists get treated, and how safe is it to walk around without being part of a tour group? So a very good concern. How are tourists treated? Is it safe to walk around alone? Philippos. Let's start with uh, with the safety issue. I would say that Greece and Athens, more specifically, despite the financial crisis, I would say that it continues to be one of the safest places in Europe. The crime rate is quite low. Of course, we have some neighborhoods that I wouldn't recommend someone going Mm. late at night, but this applies for every uh, city in the world. It is very safe, and this financial crisis is turning people around when it comes to their mentality. When you visit now, you feel far more welcome, even for us being Greeks, and being local Athenians, we witness with our own eyes that when we go to restaurants, cafes, bars, we are treated in a much better place because people value the fact that they have a job. That's the feeling I had. I thought restaurants were just happy I stepped in. They're happy there's tourism there. Uh, Apostolos, there's neighborhoods that are so characteristic, and they used to have almost no tourism, but now they're delightfully welcoming to the tourists and lots of great restaurants and shops and activities what are a couple of neighborhoods we should keep in mind? I can mention three neighborhoods, and these are Keramikos, Gazi, and Psiri. So Keramikos, named after the cemetery there. The ancient cemetery of Athens. And then Gazi, named after the gas works. The gas G-A-Z-I. works. The old gas works. And Psiri, P-S-Y-R-I. Okay, what will we find in these neighborhoods? In, in these neighborhoods, first of all, one is very different to the other. In Psiri, first of all, you can find all these like very small specialized stores. And you can see a lot of little bars and restaurants. They've changed the atmosphere of the city. It's a beautiful area. Someone can go for a stroll and enjoy a nice souvlaki or have a Greek pastry. Philippos, if you walked with me through Tsiri, what might we be sure to do? I would definitely take you for a nice glass of fuzo in a very nice bar that I go to. And then I'll take you to a place to have fried meatballs, keftedakia, as we call them, yeah? So there's a small taverna that's been around before Psiri became a trendy area. When you sit, you say, seriously? And then you sit down and you have the best fried meatballs you've ever had in your life with a nice glass of retzina, which is the white wine that we make in Greece, which is something special that you will find in this country. And then we would go and just follow interesting people. And you find yourself in a place where, with colorful bottles, or places with really nice music, music you wouldn't expect to hear in a country like Greece, like alternative rock music uh, made somewhere in California. And you would go there and have a nice whiskey. Why not? Yeah? Because 
Athens is a rather metropolitan city. And that's what's important for people to understand that because of all these different people that came the last 50 years in this city, we are now a proper metropolis, a place where you find the most traditional hand in hand with the most contemporary. A proper metropolis. You nailed it. Because in the old days, when I used to say see it and get out, it was a metropolis, but it didn't have much charm or class. It just wasn't very welcoming. Now you want to sit and savor it. And you'll find those magic little moments. Absolutely. Let's finish off with just you're traveling around the United States. When you get home, back to your hometown, Athens, what will you do to just celebrate? Yes, I'm home, Apostolus. What I would do, I would、uh, go to my local coffee place and have a genuine Greek coffee. A Greek a coffee. A double medium Greek coffee with my friends, with my neighborhood friends. So, this is something I always think when I go back. And Philippos. I will go to my balcony. I'm very lucky. And I can see the Acropolis and the seafront of Athens, though I'm downtown. And I will open a bottle of a wine that I bought on the island of Samothraki. I love it. It's a fine white wine. I will drink that and just embrace the evening of Athens. Philippos Kanakaris, Apostolos Doras, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. There's more about our guests each week at ricksteves.comslash radio. We'll take a closer look at Venice from the water in just a bit. But first, if you like the idea of being able to travel forever and build a successful career, you'll want to hear how Mike Swigunski is doing it. The digital nomad tells us about his global career. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine if you could do your work while traveling the world. Travel writer and entrepreneur Mike Swigunski is full of tips for working from anywhere you want to live. He is a digital nomad. He's worked and lived abroad for the last decade and has visited about 80 countries already. Mike joins us today from his home base in the Republic of Georgia. That's about 6,000 miles east of Atlanta. To share ideas from his book, Global Career How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. Well, it's fun to talk to somebody in the Republic of Georgia and to be thinking that you could be working anywhere and living anywhere. It's kind of radical that you're disengaging those two things. Where do I work? Where do I live? Can you define just what a digital nomad is, please? Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of connotations behind the term digital nomad. I would say the simplest way is just somebody who makes money online and has the freedom to live from anywhere. And you've spent the last decade doing just that. Give us a quick rundown on where you've been and, and how the work you've done has nothing to do with the countries that you're living in. Yeah, so the first five years of my journey was spent working physically in overseas and other locations. And then the latter five has been as a digital nomad, working remotely, building my own companies. And I would say it's been a great transition where I kind of was able to continue expanding and growing my career while traveling the world and doing something that I absolutely love. So that must be kind of an interesting evolution in your outlook or your assessment of what are your opportunities. When I think of working abroad, I think, oh, what are you going to do in Prague? And you probably started that way. And then you realized, hey, it doesn't matter where, where I'm laying my head at night. Yeah, exactly. So the location doesn't really have too much impact. I do have a lot of clients and customers US based. So I'm used to working some of those midnight hours. But again, that comes with the territory. And it's great to have that flexibility. Now, in your book, Global Career, you talk about you work on your terms. What does working on your terms mean as, as opposed to the standard working where you live and work in the same place? 
Yeah, I would say the traditional route is between, you know, the hours of nine to five, you have to be online working for somebody else's terms. Uh, In my lifestyle, I can wake up when I want, don't need an alarm clock if I don't want one. And I can essentially choose when I wake up and when I go to sleep, everything I want to work on, anything I want to do, I can kind of structure my life the way I want to. And I think a lot of people now are getting a little taste of that with remote working and being able to work online. So it's like untethered. I like that word. The job and the home are no longer tied together. Exactly. Being able to kind of mold your life around your work is kind of the new future of work. Hmm. Now you're, you're a nomad. It kind of means you have no country. What's the psychology of that? Is there a downside? Yeah, I would say there's definitely some downsides to being a nomad. You know, a lot of times your friends and your, your routine can be a little spontaneous. Uh, your friendships can be transient if you're moving around every three to six months. But I would say the most long-term digital nomads like myself, they usually find a hub where they're going to be spending a year or two at the very minimum and still traveling from that location. But because you have a travel hub, you're going to be making more concrete friendships. You're going to have a more solid routine that's easier to get back into. And I would say that's probably one way to kind of overcome a lot of the cons of digital nomadism. A lot of people think it's, you know, you're moving around every month or so, but most long-term digital nomads have some sort of home base where they travel from. And whatever type of combination that is, whether it's nine months spent in your home base and then, the, you know, the rest of the time traveling around the world, it's really up to you. But I think most people like to have that travel hub. And for me, that's Tbilisi, Georgia. Part of it, I, I've known a lot of people who are, for instance, teachers here in the United States, and suddenly they're teaching online. And, and then it occurs to them, I teach in Los Angeles, but I don't need to sleep in Los Angeles. I can go visit relatives in Iowa and still teach in Los Angeles. So you could have your hub, but you could also go on an extended trip and still do your work. And conceivably, your employer wouldn't even know you're no longer at your normal hub. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits. And I think, you know, the cost of living in L.A. versus somewhere else in the Midwest is going to be a a big night and day difference. And even internationally, that's, I would say, one of the biggest benefits for me is taking advantage of geo-arbitrage where I can earn U.S. dollars and live in a much affordable country where I can kind of elevate my lifestyle. A lot of people in the U.S. are going to realize this quickly by changing their cities and locations just around the U.S., but I think some of them will realize the big benefits of living overseas. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is digital nomad Mike Swigunski. Mike's the author of a book called Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever, and he blogs at globalcareerbook.com. So, Mike, there's certain practicalities here. I would think some, obviously, some jobs lend themselves to this and some jobs don't. How do employers respond to you as a nomad? Let's say the, the work is conceivably done just as well remotely. Do you have to sell the notion to employers or are employers sort of getting the message that you don't have that conventional need to have your employee right there in the office next to you? Yeah, I would say, you know, in the past year, things have kind of sped up probably 10 to 15 years in the future. So a lot more employers are on board with, you know, having a flexible working location. And a lot of them are more open to remote working. Uh, Before that, it was kind of a little bit more boutique. Certain companies were really on board with it. Some other companies weren't. But we've really kind of pulled a 180 on the remote workforce. And now a lot of industries that probably would have taken 10 to 15 years to get on board are very receptive to having their employees working remotely because it's a win-win for both sides of the coin. Yeah. 
as an employer, I'm starting to see, get that message. I remember I was pretty adamant about, I want people together physically, but now I can see there's a case to be made for remote. I want to go through some practicalities here. There's just a lot of basic stuff I'd like to cover and get your take on. First of all, are you generally clocking in and do they expect you to work some equivalent of nine to five? Or is it, are you just on a contract to do something full time? How do they keep track of your hours? I would say there's a few different methods. The majority of remote companies that I work with, they're having their employees focus on their outputs and not their inputs. So they're going to have certain goals that you need to achieve through the week. And no matter how much time that takes you, if it takes you 60 hours or 40 hours or 10 hours, uh, they're more concerned with the outputs. As long as you're getting your work done, there's going to be a lot more flexibility. So what are the taxation issues, the bureaucracy of of being an American working in the Republic of Georgia or you were in Colombia or in the Czech Republic? Are there headaches because you are an American working in their country or are you just essentially a long-term tourist that's getting a lot of stuff done for pay from far away? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of clear defined incentives for remote workers and for people that are living overseas. The foreign earned income exclusion is actually an IRS tax incentive that essentially allows people that spend more than 330 days outside of the United States not to have to pay income taxes. So there's a lot of other benefits to that, and there's a few other ways to find eligibility. But again, each country is so different that, you know, some countries, if you spend more than six months in the country, you become an automatic tax resident. But it's really going to vary on the country. And again, I always highly recommend people to consult a tax professional, both in the U.S. and overseas, to make sure that you're not breaking any laws. Uh, But there is some IRS incentives, so you don't have to pay U.S. income taxes. So you could conceivably be making $100,000 a year and paying no taxes because you're living in one country and and working remotely? Exactly. That's a huge advantage. Yeah, it's essentially it's one of the biggest perks, getting to live overseas and not have to pay taxes. So if you're not you know, meeting the local tax requirements. Like, let's say, you know, you have to spend more than six months to meet the local tax incentives. So if you're spending five months in a country, you can just kind of move along and do the the visa shuffle where you essentially don't legally have to pay taxes. So there is a lot of incentives for that. And the visa shuffle, that's another thing. How does the visa and the work permit sort of concerns impact a digital nomad? Yeah, I've always found that there's there's always some sort of way some sort of legal way to stay in a country long term, whether that's setting up a local business and applying for a remote work visa or just doing a visa run where you leave the country, go across the border and then come back. For example, here in Tbilisi, Georgia, one of the reasons we came here is because they have a one year tourist visa. When that one year tourist visa leaves, you can do an hour border run to Armenia and come back in. Now, things have changed a lot recently, but there's some sort of way if you do find a country that you absolutely love, to stay there a little bit longer. I had a sense from reading your book that you you were in Colombia and you liked Colombia, but then it got complicated from a legal point of view. You decided to leave it and settle down in the Republic of Georgia, which is much more lenient. Yeah, so I essentially had a spreadsheet tracking the days that I'd spent in the United States, the days that I'd spent in Colombia, and I just got kind of tired of that. So finding a country like Georgia, which is extremely welcoming, to lots of different countries and has a long tourist visa option. That was one of the biggest incentives for the reason we came here. Imagine if you never had to come home from vacation. Mike Swagunski is our guest from his current home base in Tbilisi, Georgia, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Mike's been working and traveling full-time since 2011 on a journey that's taken him to more than 80 countries. He shares his first-hand advice for creating your own international career as a digital nomad in his book, Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. His website includes blog entries on how to get started teaching English overseas, managing an online business, and living light with a minimum of stuff. It's at globalcareerbook.com. So this is really a new frontier, Mike. You've built a life in different cities as you've traveled. You mentioned parachuting into Australia. I would imagine parachuting means drop in with no connections and put your life together. What, what's the routine of that? What happens when you enter a new country? You don't know anybody. You don't know the laws. You just want to put up some roots. Yeah, I would say, honestly, it's almost easier to meet people overseas because you're going to be connecting with other expats who are in kind of the same boat. So they're much more open to meeting new crowds. There's always a lot of events. And for the example of Australia, I was on the working holiday visa, which allows Americans to essentially find any job that an Australian could do. And the majority of people that are going there are looking for fruit picking jobs and other type of backpacker jobs. But I went in with the mentality to find a tech marketing job. And within seven days, I was able to find a really nice job where I had flexible remote working. I was getting a much higher salary than most other backpackers. And it was something that I was proud of, something that I could put on my resume and continue building my career. So I think I just having that different mindset when I arrived to Australia to really connect with people, to start applying for jobs and just kind of immerse myself as soon as possible. So, Mike, when I think about working abroad, I've always thought countries are sort of threatened by somebody from a wealthier country that comes into their country and and displaces a local worker by doing a job that that local worker could do. Therefore, they don't want to let that American work in that country. But when you're working remotely, that takes that whole concern off the table, doesn't it? You have nothing to do with taking the job of a local worker when you are living there but working remotely. Yeah, I I definitely think... Uh, A lot of countries now are seeing that benefit with remote workers coming in. They're going to be spending a much higher salary than than the locals. They could potentially be employing a lot more people. We employ some people here, so we we are giving it back to say. And I'd say that's that's going to be like the new future where, you know, instead of having tourists come in for a few weeks, you know, they can appeal to tourists, but they can also appeal to these longer term digital nomads who might spend six months to a year and, and probably invest a lot more sustainability into the economy. So they aren't worried necessarily about people taking jobs. Right. But yeah, you are kind of in this gray area of being an online worker. Now, for 10 years, you've been on the road. Have you had the same phone number or the same bank account, the same social media identity? I mean, are you still the American you were before you left America 10 years ago? What about, you know, how do you have those kind of roots or stability in your life? Or do you? Yeah, so... Since I was 18, I've had the same phone number. I was able to port it over to Google Voice. And there's a lot of good options for if you want to have an international phone number, a U.S.-based phone number. So to answer your question, I'm definitely a different person than when I left uh, around the age of 21. I've grown in a lot of different areas, personally and professionally. But I still maintain a lot of my identity, friendships and family in the United States. I still keep in contact with everyone that that I can over the years. But again, you know, I've I've definitely grown and kind of made travel part of my identity. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about and something that I love. And I want to help others get started in a much faster pace than I did. As you've lived abroad and, and worked remotely from abroad, you've dealt with 
cultural differences, I would imagine, tempos of life, uh, respect for seniority, issues of pervasive corruption, racism, lack of trust in institutions, terrible red tape. One society takes risks and another won't encourage you to take risks. What are your experiences as somebody who works abroad but who is fundamentally a traveler? What have you learned between countries? Wow. You know, how much time do you have? I mean, I could talk about this for hours. I've learned so much by living overseas, and it's the thing that's opened up my eyes and helped me grow so much as a, an individual. And I would say anybody who's out there is looking to really grow themselves, doing solo travel, uh, where you're really just putting yourself out there on your own, is probably one of the most personally beneficial things that I've done. Uh, as far as learning about other cultures, studying my master's degree in South Korea was probably one of those big culture shocks where I always felt kind of at home in Europe and Australia and New Zealand. But when I got to live and study overseas in South Korea, I was studying with, you know, 90% were South Koreans. It really immersed me into a, a completely different culture that they, they really just accepted me as kind of like a younger brother in the MBA program. And I would say that was probably one of the most beneficial ways that I grew inside the classroom and outside of the classroom with learning about this new culture, new language, what kind of makes these people driven every day. And the Korean people that I was studying with have, had been such lovely people that they kind of accepted mm. me with open arms. I mean, you've, you've experienced that sort of intimacy with the culture, actually putting down roots there in Korea, in Colombia, in the Republic of Georgia, in Czech Republic, and you've still got an American phone number. It is so fascinating. Our guest today has been digital nomad Mike Zwiganski, and Mike's book is Global Career, How to Work Anywhere and Travel Forever. Mike, I'd like to finish off with a moment when you were working as a digital nomad that you realized, yeah, this, this is going to be my norm. Yeah, that's a great question, Rick. I would say my first digital nomad job when I was in Australia, and I kind of was going there with the mindset to find a job that was going to further my career. And I was looking for something remote. I'd been, until this point, I'd been working kind of physical locations that had me tied to that city or that location. But my job in Australia was essentially I could work from my laptop. And once I kind of had that freedom, it was a one-way street where I knew there was no going back from being able to wake up, go to my kitchen, make some coffee, turn on my laptop and start answering emails and start doing my job. I knew that was the life and that was the light bulb moment for me that really clicked where this was around 2015 and I had this remote work life. I could travel, I could work from my laptop. And once I knew that there was no going back, I knew that from that point on, I would only be remote working. And again, it's been once you're introduced to it, I think a lot of people now are going to have trouble going back into an office because they realize so many benefits of remote working. Mike, listening to your experiences reminds me that I've got this favorite phrase in Italy. For some reason, I just love to say bon lavoro to people. It's like, enjoy your work, bon lavoro. And I always like to say happy travels. And uh, as a digital nomad, you can have bon lavoro and you can have happy travels. And it sounds like you figured it out. Mike, bon lavoro and happy travels. Thanks so much, Rick. Happy travels to yourself. The history of life. As we all walk through life. As a nomad. A lone child, walking, running, going,
across the desert sands. No man. When Stacy Gaboni was an art student in Venice, she decided to stay. She's made it her home base now for 20 years. Fred Plotkin's been exploring and writing about Italy since he was a student. A few years ago, he was even awarded an honorarium by the government of Italy for his contributions to promoting Italian culture and cuisine around the world. They join us next on Travel with Rick Steves for a lagoon-side view of Venice. Stay with us. Before 2020, the tourist crowds in the romantic canals and piazzas of Venice were said to be loving it to death. In November 2019, the deepest flooding in 50 years soaked the city with exceptional aqua alta high tides. Our friend Stacy Gaboni, who lives there, had to rescue her artworks from her ground floor studio. We got her on the phone to share her experience with us and with Fred Plotkin. Fred's a longtime Italy expert who's followed the slow progress Venice has made at controlling the rising waters from its lagoon. They join us now for a conversation we recorded shortly after the flooding and just a few weeks before the pandemic closures as we reflect on the future of Venice. Thank you. Buonasera. Thanks for having me. Now, Fred, you wrote your thesis at the university was on the what was called the Death of Venice. Tell us why we have the Aqua Alta and, and what's the backstory of this uh, flooding of Venice. Well, historically, there were always tides at full moon and so on, and the city throughout its history had periodic flooding, but nothing like what we've seen in recent times. The problem really became aggravated the way so many things did with the rise of fascism in the 1920s. Mussolini decided that he would widen the three natural inlets of the lagoon, understand that the lagoon separates Venice in the north from the Adriatic Sea in the south. The three inlets are called Lido, Malamocco, and Chioggia. And by widening them, it allowed more water to come into the lagoon, more salt water. He did that because he put, stupidly, oil refineries in the mainland town of Marghera. So the oil tankers would go out of the lagoon into the Adriatic, and ever since we've had this problem. Add to that that the pollution that was a result of the oil refineries plus agricultural runoff meant that the foundations, the fundamente of the city of Venice, were eaten away. So by the 1970s, Venice was sinking because of all of this rot. Long story short, the city was actually supported and made stronger. It sinks ever so slightly now. We have a new problem. Climate change has led to melting to higher waters, bigger storms, so that most of the recent disastrous floods in Venice have been in the first decade and the second decade of the 21st century, including three horrible days in November 2019. Wow. The high water really is a... um it's a perfect storm of, of different variables. You've got a wind, you've got a high tide with a full moon, you've got changes caused by the development of the region, and uh, we've got Venice's inability to, to do anything about it. It's, it's sort of a helpless situation, isn't it? Describe what it's like, Stacy. because as a tourist, I've been there and, you know, it's kind of, you take photographs of it and they've got the elevated walkways and some people pull on their hip boots and it's, it's something to, it's kind of exciting. But you're living there and you've got the reality of, of mold and bacteria and humidity exactly. and problems with your electricity. Yeah. What's it like to live in Venice after a, a big flood? 
I think that, I mean, obviously I'm not Venetian, as we well know. I've adopted the city as, as my home. I've chosen to live in this beautiful, delicate place that to me uh, holds so much magic. So the high waters are part of my conscious decision to live here. I don't want to complain about them to you because it's a part of the choice that has been made. And the Venetians have that same sort of confident energy. You're just used to cleaning up after the high waters. You know, Fred, one thing that I find really interesting when we think about the Aqua Alta, the high water, is Piazza San Marco, where most of the tourists think of as the the ground zero for their Venetian experience, is about the lowest part of the city. It's the first place to flood. And when you look at it, the the columns for the Doge's Palace seem to be getting shorter and shorter. And if I understand it correctly, it's because over time, when the water when the city sinks, in the past it was the city sinking rather than the than the water rising, they would take up the stones on Piazza San Marco and put down another layer of sand and put the stones back into place. And slowly, the altitude of the city would would rise to make up for the the sinking of it. Did, do I do you understand? Is that the you are correct, and that's a certain kind of patching, for lack of a better term, that they would do in the absence of a real solution. But frankly, the Piazza San Marco is where the money is made. It's it's a wonderful place. I always tell people to go to the Piazza San Marco. After all, the tourists leave, sit there at about 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. when just a couple of the bars are still open. Uh, on one side during the day is where the sun is. So you see the Germans, Wagner went to that one. On the other side in the shade is where the Italians went because they did not want to be in the sun. Mm. So there are two rival cafes that face one another. But by night, it's quiet. And even on that big, beautiful square, you sit there, you look at the five cupola of the Basilica of San Marco, you see the four horses of San Marco, everything comes into relief in a different way. Mm. And so it too can have its beauty once all the tourists have gone. That's, That's why key. you need to stay overnight in Venice for a week would be better. You know, I, I was filming once two shows in a row over 10 or 12, 12 days. It, I was really situated in Venice, and I, I had to get up early every morning and walk across town, and it became my, my favorite time of the day. It was that two hours before the tour groups arrive, you know, when it's just people setting up, and I loved it. And the same thing as Fred said, being out after, after most of the groups are back on their cruise ships and back on their hotels and on the mainland. We're looking at the impacts of tourist crowds and high waters in Venice on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Fred Plotkin, author of the classic Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and American-born Stacy Gaboni, who's lived in Venice since arriving there as an art student. Tom from Shorewood, Wisconsin's on the line at 877-333-RICK with a question about visiting more of the islands in the lagoon. What do you recommend seeing on the islands of Murano, Burano, Torricelli, Lido, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Guideca, okay. and, and then the Cemetery Island. I wanted to find out what you recommended on those islands. Okay, well, let's, let's let Fred first explain what is the lagoon, and then we'll talk about each of those islands. Thanks for your call, Tom. Thank you. So, backstory: When Attila the Hun invaded Aquileia, which was a Roman settlement, the people of Aquileia moved to 118 very inhospitable islands in the northern lagoon of the Adriatic. They created Venetia, Venezia, in other words, rising like a phoenix. So this is Aquileia transformed to Venice. 
And therefore, they built a city that was based on, number one, women having more prominence than had been seen anywhere else in that part of the world, number two, on democratically elected governments, and each of the islands developed its own administration. And each of the islands took on its own personality and characteristics so that Murano and Burano, where glass-making happened, again, Romans began making glass, but it was in Venice and nearby that perfume was developed where they would take flowers, combine it with, with alcohol from wine, and put it in beautiful bottles. So all of this evolved in Venice where beauty became a virtue hmm. more than ever before, and everything had to be beautiful, functional, and distinctive. And therefore, when you go, for example, to Murano and Burano, yes, they still make glass. Yes, some of it is touristy, but they have a glass museum. And that's worth going to discover the history of glass making in that part of the world. So, Fred, that's, I love that comment, that notion that everything is tied in with beauty in Venice. And when you travel there, you really do experience that. But if you go way back to the very beginnings of Venice... My understanding, and, and Stacy, correct me here if I'm wrong, but we're both tour guides, and, and this is, I think, the story that we like to tell. The people on the mainland kept getting, after the fall of Rome, they, they kept getting run over by barbarians, and they finally said, enough of this. Uh, you know, We're going to move out into the lagoon and, and hope the barbarians don't like water. And they actually left their farming. They went out into the lagoon, kind of almost deforested that part of uh, the Veneto by getting all these tree trunks and, and pounding them into the mud to give themselves foundations, and they became fishermen and then traders. And that really was the birth of Venice in the Dark Ages of Europe. What was their magic potion? How did Venice become so powerful then? Well, I'd say also exactly everything you just said, Rick, and don't forget about the salt harvesting. Okay. So salt harvesting was a very valuable trade. Before refrigeration, it was critical. If people yes, could have of course. I mean, that, that's why our poor man's fisherman cuisine, that was a typical Venetian cuisine, uh, has a lot to do with salted foods. Uh, bacala, for example, is one of the staples of the Venetian diet, okay. right? Polenta and bacala. And I'm thinking about your um, comment about deforestation, typical Roman action, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and those tree trunks, uh, you know, every time the tides are exceptionally low, the city's foundation is at risk for exposure to air, which can eat away at those tree trunks, which makes our city unstable. Um, and that's another conversation that has come up in relationship also to the powerful cruise ships that come through the Judecca Canal. Fred, what would your tip be for going out to Murano and enjoying the glass industry and the, and the, and the heritage of glass? From very close to San Marco, there's a Vaporetto that takes you there. Mm-hmm. And what I always tell people in Venice, the journey within the city is part of the pleasure. It's not just let's not pay attention till we get there. Look at how the light changes. Look at churches that vanish from view. Look when suddenly there are seabirds that are landing on the water and following your vaporetto. You're still within the city. But when you get to the island of Murano or Burano, they're near to one another, one of the things you immediately notice is that the houses in some ways seem more modern They're more brightly painted Mm -hmm. than elsewhere in the city. They have intense colors. It's kind of like if you've been to Norway 
and you see red houses or white or gold houses standing against the water. It's the same thing in this part, and there's a reason for that. The bakala, the cod trade, came from Norway, and the Venetian traders and the Norwegian traders saw what it looked like in the north and brought back that imagery and painted the houses in Murano and Burano the way they saw it in Norway. There's even an opera about the fish trade between Norway and Venice. I've always thought Burano has some, it's got this, um, it's more saturated, it's more more colorful, it's, it's got pastels in the extreme, and I've always thought my, my photographs look better in Burano, and I, I think you, you nailed it there. Fascinating destination in the lagoon is also uh, the island of Torcello. Tom asked about Torcello, and uh, my understanding Torcello. is this is the, in some ways, the oldest part of Venice, but it, it was decimated by a malaria attack a thousand years ago or something, but it has the oldest church in Venice. And when I go to Torcello and when I go to top of the bell tower, I look out in the lagoon and I can imagine that very first Venice from those refugees coming from the mainland. Stacey, what's your experience on Torcello? I, I'm absolutely in love with Torcello and I drag all of our clients out there on our lagoon day because I just love it. And Rick, you've been going there forever as well as Fred. And do you remember when it was still just a dirt road to take you down to the oldest church in the lagoon? Now it's all nice. The the fundament is all bricked up nice. And there, you can see that the local people have become very involved in farming out there in Borano mm-hmm. and Torcello. There's a lot of push towards that farm-to-table here in the city as well, oh, okay. with local restaurants. and. And there are younger farmers out there, and that's something that's sort of coming back from, from another time. And I, I, I love that about Torcello. Stacy Gaboni's on the line from her home and art studio in Venice. And Italophile Fred Plotkins in the studio of the Radio Foundation in New York. We're looking at issues of over-tourism and flooding from its rising lagoon that were frequently plaguing Venice before the pandemic shutdowns. There's much more to the lagoon, and we could talk all for hours about it, but um, Fred and Stacy, I'd love for each of you just to share one other dimension. Uh, 90% of the tourists go to Murano, Burano, and Torcello. What would you recommend people take seriously as, an, as a sightseeing destination in, in the lagoon, uh, Fred? I love Chioggia. Chioggia is technically on the mainland. It's where the Po River, the Brenta Canal are. It is the fish market of Venice. And these magnificent species of fish that wind up on Venetian tables are found in Chioggia. So if you love food, if you love fish, that's where it all begins. And that's a big, it's a sizable city on the south end of the lagoon. I think it's spelled C-H-I-O-G-G-I-A. And, yes. uh, and it just, it feels like Venice without the cutesiness. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a workaday <laughs> town with, as Fred said, a thriving market. Stacy, how about you? I am a huge fan of San Francesco de la Vigna. It's a beautiful small island that St. Francis passed through once upon a time, and there's still a community of brothers there. It's a very, very beautiful natural space to be in. And I just have to add one more, if I may, Rick, because Certosa is not as difficult to get to as San Francesco de la Vigna. Certosa is closer. You could maybe combine it with a trip out to the cemetery, which is an amazing place to visit. Uh, Certosa is a kind of an up-and-coming island for younger people. They have a lot of community activities going on out there. They've 
uh, boat parking. There's a, a company of young people who have designed electric boat motors, and you could take a tour with them. Nice. Bunny rabbits on the island of Chertosa. Bunny rabbits. So <laughs> we've got one. one yeah. Your first destination was St. Francis or San Francesco. San, San Francesco de la Vigna. It's a little farther out. Yeah. If you can get there, maybe if you're going on a private tour or okay. with a taxi that's going to take you, uh, do like a Torcello slash San Francisco de la Vigna visit. And the other one is Chertosa. And exactly. And it's pretty convenient if you're visiting the cemetery or if you're maybe at the Arsenal, like coming around the backside there. Okay. okay. Now, somebody mentioned uh, San Michele, and that is, of course, the little cemetery yes. island, and it's just, it's on the way to Murano. Fred, what about the cemetery island from your experience? Well, one of the great things to do in Venice, sad though it is, is to go to a funeral there or at least be present when it happens because the hearses in Venice are gondolas or a small craft that convey the mourning family as well as the coffin to the cemetery. And Hmm. it's a very somber thing because the men who pilot the boats are dressed in black the way you would see in funerary observances elsewhere but on water. And then when you go there, it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. There's a musician section. There's an artist section, priest, as you said. And if you think it's quiet on the mainland of Venice, you should try the cemetery. (laughs) No place quieter (laughs) in the whole world. Tranquilo. Fred Plotkin, author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and Stacey Gavoni, wonderful tour guide and artist uh, who's a resident in Venice, Thank you both very much for giving us a better appreciation of the Lagoon of Venice. Grazie. Thank you, Rick. Grazie. Ciao. We enjoy hearing how our listeners describe their travel impressions and surprises in the form of a haiku poem. Every so often, someone sends us something a bit more elaborate. Way back in the second year of Travel with Rick Steves, a listener from the Tidewater area of Virginia sent us a poem she wrote about the rising waters of Venice. We thought you'd enjoy hearing it again. Rachel Unk reads it for us. Maureen Mullen from Virginia Beach writes us this poem she composed about Venice. She whispers, Venice is sinking. She whispers, as Vivaldi plays, Couples sway while the earth boat floats on water, rising, reaching for a hand firmly tucked away in pockets closed to a lover's grasp. Palazzos and pigeons, gondolas in moonlight, bridges that sigh. She wonders, is Venice sinking or am I? Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Kaz Hall and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We'd love to get an original haiku poem that you've written about the impressions you get from your travels. We might even read it on the air one day. There's a link for sending us yours at ricksteves.com radio. Let's get together again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. 
It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.